Hello, food nerds. Welcome back to Literally Delicious and the second part of our two-part look at dishes from Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. In our last episode, we made two versions of cornbread that you don't see very often, corn pone and corn dodgers. In this episode, we are going to make pork, cabbage, and greens as close as I can to the stuff that Jim and Huck enjoyed in the novel. Thank you so much for stopping by for the second part of our deep dive into Huckleberry Finn. If you've liked what you've heard so far, it would really mean a lot if you could rate or review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening from. By rating and reviewing, you help others discover our show, and so I really, really appreciate any time that you can spend rating and reviewing. Thank you for being a part of the Literally Delicious fam. So, I don't want to go back too far into a synopsis of the story. If you want to refresh your course on Huckleberry Finn, do go back to episode two of the podcast and part one of our deep dive into Huckleberry Finn, where I go into a little bit more detail and depth as to what is going on in the story so far. But to pick up at the point where Jim and Huck enjoy their meal, at the point of the novel where they've already floated down the Mississippi River toward Cairo, Illinois, the furthest southern point of the Free States, where they will intersect with the Ohio River toward points north and freedom for Jim, who was a slave for Miss Watson, the adoptive guardian of Huckleberry. So... Previous to this, they got separated, Jim and Huck. Huck gets involved in a feud with a family in Kentucky or Missouri, somewhere south of the Cairo, Illinois juncture that they were looking for. But eventually the two meet up and Huck has to dodge, has to leave town quite quickly. And so he and Jim are back floating down the Mississippi with one another where they enjoy this very famous meal cited in the novel. Quote, I never felt easy till the raft was two miles below there and out in the middle of the Mississippi. Then we hung up our single lantern and judged that we was free and safe once more. I hadn't had a bite to eat since yesterday, so Jim, he got out some corn dodgers and buttermilk and pork and cabbage and greens. There ain't nothing in the world so good when it's cooked right. And whilst I eat my supper, we talked and had a good time. So, what are the origins of this dish called pork and cabbage and greens here? When trying to source material for a recipe for this, I found it already in a number of cookbooks and memoirs by African-American chefs that, since the 1990s, have written recipes for what they proudly identify as slave food. According to Vivian Nunn-Halloran in the journal Culture, Theory, and Critique, some of these recipes aim to replicate what a field slave may have made for their own family with the meager resources that they had. The high rate of illiteracy for slaves in the South meant that few of the recipes were actually ever written down. In A Taste of Heritage, The New African-American Cuisine, Joe Randall and Tony Tipton Martin emphasized the artistry of slave cooks who, in their view, created the Southern cuisine that whites later claimed as their own. The interesting thing here, I speculate but feel confident in saying, is that when Huck says, there ain't nothing in the world so good when it's cooked right, it sounds like Twain is speaking directly to the reader, almost from his own experience. His audience, some of them white Southerners surely, will recognize this much-beloved dish and think, yes, nothing in the world is so good. So it's clear that both 
poor whites and black folks uh, in the South enjoyed this dish. And in the gardens of poor white Southerners, and even in the gardens of the plantations themselves, you would see collard greens growing. But for reasons that I'll get into in just a minute, Southern cuisine must recognize slavery as the leading factor in the consumption and the preparation of collards as we know it today in the U.S. And as this moment, I think, makes clear, so much of Southern cuisine has the work of slaves really to thank from both the context of what the slaves made in their own homes and what they made for their slavers. So what kind of greens are we talking about here? Well, the aforementioned authors cite no other greens as so quintessentially part of the enslaved person's diet as the collard green. According to Michael Twitty, a food historian who I referenced in our last episode on cornbread, collards have a unique history that is very intimately tied into the history of slavery. I will link you to Twitty's very interesting blog called Afroculinaria, where I'm getting my information for this segment, in our description for this episode. So despite what you might have heard, collards do not actually originate from Africa. According to Twitty, the collard is a Eurasian plant in origin. Many different greens grow well in Western and Central Africa, roughly 30 to 60 edible varieties, Twitty notes. From Europe, starting in the Middle Ages, the collard and kale seeds migrated with the Portuguese into Morocco. In fact, the intersection and influence of Portuguese colonization in uh, African slave cuisine may be seen in the similarities between Portuguese caldo verde, which is green soup, and African dishes, all of which are green seasons, seasoned with meat or fish, salt, and peppers. Given the Portuguese penchant for consuming greens, it makes sense that the gardens of the slaves in the Portuguese forts were full of collards and kale varieties, and these seeds and plants left the forts and found their way into the interior of Africa in what is now Ghana, Angola, Senegal, and Nigeria. There's not a lot of information out there about the travel of the collard, or colwort in some sources, as it's called, into the United States, or what is now the United States. The consumption of greens, however, is also a part of the northern European diet, with greens arriving in the British Isles with the Romans or Celts as far back as the 4th century BCE. Preparation of greens soup in Britain continued up through the 19th century, in poor and rural British communities. But that preparation using collard greens eventually fell out of style in Britain, though it continued strong here in the United States. Why, you may ask? Well, I'm not really sure about why the collard fell out of use in rural England, but I can tell you why its consumption continued in the United States. Of course, I'm talking about Africans in the United States, African Americans, now who were brought here for slavery. In the 17th century, when the English colonization of what would become the United States began in Virginia, greens certainly came with them. Those early colonizers, of course, brought slaves with them as well, capturing those slaves, for the most part, from Western Africa. Twitty writes that it is highly possible that the first Africans in Virginia, being Afro-Creoles from Portuguese Angola, would have known the colwort and appreciate its cultivation by their 17th century English captors. 
So although the consumption of collards died out in England around the same time as this, the familiarity and popularity of the collard to African cooks drove the cultivation and consumption of the collard green in the United States. The first recorded connection between the African-American people and collards, spelled C-O-L-L-E-R-D-S, note that this is spelled with an E and not the typical A, was from Captain William Feltman of the Continental Army in the year 1781, who spotted enslaved people growing beans and collards in their gardens, but notably no cabbages, in Hanover County, Virginia. The collard green can survive the heat of the summer and the frost of winter and have a wonderful nutritious value, making them an integral part of the slave diet, which otherwise would be devoid of much nutrition from the rations they were given. The African-American preparation of the greens, which may have been learned from the Portuguese, is what we recognize as southern greens today. This recipe cited in Twitty's blog, provides an example of cooking collards like other greens, such as turnip or mustard greens, which you would also find uh, in the gardens of slaves. From an 1839 recipe from the Kentucky housewife, collards should be boiled in every respect like turnip salad, served warm with bacon, and seasoned at table with salt, pepper, and vinegar. All kinds of salad should be thoroughly washed in two waters, otherwise it will be gritty. So, we see here that the preparation of collard greens as being cooked with salt and meat in a flavorful broth is something that was definitely sort of solidified by the 19th century. Now, let's continue forward in time toward the 1830s and 1840s, which is the setting of Huckleberry Finn. As far back as 1830, according to Twitty, a traveler found collards growing in the gardens of slaves in the Mississippi River area. The dates of these two references to collard greens show how they move uh, quite quickly with enslaved people across the expanse of the South. And at that same time, of course, the United States was expanding the slavery as uh, institution in, in the southern region of the country. Slavery in Missouri went as far back as the early 1700s, back when Missouri was part of the French colonies, actually. So collards, they grow best in coastal areas, I've learned, but they're not endemic to the South, as Twitty puts it. And a lot of old recipes for greens in this area show a preference for turnip greens or a combination of turnip, mustard, and collard greens. However, according to the horticultural department at Purdue University, Collards grow heartily in Missouri. So since I think Jim would have had collards available to him, that's what I'm going to cook later in this episode. Now, for the pork. What we know about the slave rations of the time, and what we could guess about what Jim could afford when he gathers, quote, pots and pans and vittles for food to make for he and Huckleberry, means that the pork is likely salt pork, made from leftover cuts and preserved in salt, of course, to last a very long time. This meager meat was provided to the enslaved people by the slaveholders, along with rations of some inexpensive grain and molasses or sugar, whichever was cheapest at the time. Vegetables were almost never rationed to slaves because the practice of the day was to 
extract as much labor out of the enslaved person in the production of cash crops, which were highly labor-intensive. I'm talking here about tobacco and cotton, which left little time left for the cultivation of food crops. The slavers would give the enslaved people energy-dense, but not nutrition-dense foods, so that they could perform more labor, but this led to a lot of diseases caused by malnutrition in uh, the African-American slaves. This forced malnutrition is just one of, of course, the multiple atrocities committed in the history of slavery in the United States. But out of resourcefulness and in part uh, the resolve to stay alive, slaves grew their own gardens in, in which they grew really hardy and nutritious plants such as beans and collard greens, which provided them much needed nutrients and provided the backbone of a lot of southern dishes today. Slaves grew more in these gardens than they could eat, so it was customary and permissible by the slaveholders for the enslaved to bring their extra crops to Sunday market. Jim, who was himself a slave, likely traded with other slaves to get these vegetables for he and Huckleberry's dinner. Last, but certainly not least, there's the cabbage. What kind of cabbage, you ask? Well, to be fair, collards themselves are a type of cabbage. Their leaves are just loosely sprouted and not tightly compacted, like you would find on a head of green or red cabbage. Red cabbage would give this soup a strange color, so it is likely that a green or white cabbage variety would have been used. Cabbage is really high in vitamin A and vitamin C, and like collards, can grow heartily throughout the United States. Its nutritional value would help explain its appearance in the gardens of slaves and the poor and rich white people for that matter. From recipes for pork, cabbage, and greens that I have found and that I will link in the description for today's episode, green cabbage looks like it was highly available and just the right nutritious ingredient that would have made it into Jim's preparation of pork, cabbage, and greens. So, as you've just heard, this episode has really been about cabbage, which is an ingredient that millions of Americans will eat with corned beef this week on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. My family made it for me growing up, and I can remember the smell vividly, like a sulfurous smell from the cabbage and a mustardy smell from the brine for the corned beef that I always have associated with being Irish-American. For the record, Liam Stack reports in the New York Times that the origins of corned beef and cabbage are not really so Irish as much as they are an immigrant creation forged in the melting cauldron of different cultures that is New York City. Pork has always been a greater part in Irish food history than beef, but the Irish immigrants in the 19th century New York City swapped more expensive bacon for Jewish brisket, and thus the corned beef and cabbage dish was born. But according to Kevin O'Neill, a professor of Irish studies at Boston College, cited in the stack piece, quote, cabbage, of course, was an Irish mainstay. From my research, different types of cabbage are an integral part of diets around the world, with each variety sprouting in different parts of the world throughout history. So before we head into the kitchen to make pork, cabbage, and greens from Huckleberry Finn, I want to finish our celebration of the cabbage with a light little cabbage trivia. Okay, food nerds. So I have Gab here, who is always so kind as to indulge me in my silly food games to play some cabbage trivia. So Gab, 
mm-hmm. and food nerds, feel free to play along at home or wherever you are right now. I will name a type of cabbage and give you four regions of the world, generally countries, typically. And I'll have you guess from one of those four options what uh, you think or where you think the cabbage originates. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. And thanks for having me back on the pod. Anytime. Okay. So, again, feel free to play wherever you are, food nerds. Number one, Brussels sprouts. Are they from France, the United States, Belgium, or Germany? Ooh, so based on them being called Brussels sprouts, my gut is Brussels, Belgium, but I feel like that's too easy. So I'm going to say France. Oh, so sorry. (laughs) The correct answer was Belgium. Overthought that one. It's okay. I'll just figure out how to bleep it. (laughs) Sorry, food nerds. Okay. Ready for number two? Yeah. Broccoli. Did you know that was a cabbage? No, I didn't, but that is interesting. It's a... Cruciferous. mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a very ornate kind of cabbage grown because it's, like, very pretty looking with its little different little leafy thing. (laughs) I don't think broccoli is very pretty, but (laughs) go ahead. Is it from Italy, China, United States, or France? Ooh. Mm, Let's go China. Oh, sorry, that's wrong. Again? You're wrong again. I'm sorry. It's from Italy, actually. Italy? Yeah. And you can note uh, that it rhymes with ravioli. So broccoli, broccoli ravioli right. has to be from Italy. Not a really perfect rhyme, <laughs> but I'll give that one to you. Okay. How about a third one now? This one looks like broccoli. Cauliflower. Cauliflower is also a type of cabbage. Is it from Cyprus, France... Greece, or Italy? Mm, Okay, so I'm not a big cauliflower fan, so this one's extra tough. Not that I have a great track record. Um, Greece? Oh, close. Italy? Cyprus. Cyprus. You think Italy because the cauliflower and the broccoli look so similar, but Uh history says in Cyprus, the cauliflower was first produced. Okay, a couple more. Chance to redeem yourself. <laughs> Napa cabbage. Napa, California. Uh, well, here, let me give you the <laughs> options. United States, China, Korea, or France? United States. Am I wrong again? <laughs> Sorry, that's wrong again. I'm it never does... coming back on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> You've been pod canceled. <laughs> no, it, it sounds like it should be from Napa, California, but it is China. Okay. Napa cabbage of the Beijing area of China. For that rec- uh, for that matter, bok choy is also from China. I would have gotten that one right. Mm-hmm. They're both developed around the same time, around 5th century AD. Uh, I thought Korea would be another choice because Napa cabbage is so often used in kimchi. That As didn't you know, come I'm to not mind. a kimchi person, so... Okay, another strike against you on the podcast. <laughs> we'll try to go past it. Last one. Okay. Are you ready? This one's the hardest one, I think. Can you give me a signal when you read the right answer so that I can get this one right? I I will not. I refuse to let you cheat at cabbage (laughs) trivia. It's a major, you know, playing for money here, right? Savoy cabbage. I 
I've honestly Savoy. never heard of Savoy cabbage. It looks like green cabbage, which is a little bit more like wrinkly looking. Okay. Is it from France, the United Kingdom, Italy, or Belgium? So we've already seen... The UK. Uh, oh, so you're confident it's the UK? Is that your final answer? <laughs> Am I confident that it's the UK? And by the way, food nerds, I've covered my face. This is not to give away anything. I am going to say that I'm confident that it's the UK. It's not. It's from France. Well, on that note. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, you were 0 for 5 cabbage facts. But I think this just goes to show just how ubiquitous cabbage is. You think that it's from anywhere, but really it's an international ingredient. I think it it should be given more respect and love. Yeah. What is your favorite type of cabbage, Nick? That's tough. Um, You know, I'm a huge broccoli fan. Mm -hmm. I also like bok choy a Mm -hmm. lot. So one of those two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, thank you so much for playing, Gab, and for all you food nerds out there who guessed along with us. I hope you're having a great week. Happy St. Patrick's Day to all who celebrate Let's head into the kitchen. If you would like to follow along with me, go to Instagram at literallydelishpod to get today's recipe and all of the recipes that we've done on this show. Well, well, that's it for now. Let's take this party to the kitchen. Why just read it when you can eat it? Stay hungry. Hello, food nerds. Welcome back into the kitchen where today we're going to make pork, cabbage, and greens from Huckleberry Finn. So this is, in all honesty, my first time ever making this dish and collard greens. Uh, Anyway, even though it's definitely not my first time eating collard greens, I love collard greens a lot. I had them a bunch when I lived in North Carolina. They're one of my favorite sides to go with barbecue or just to eat on their own. So let's get into it today. This recipe does call for a good bit of prep work beforehand. I've taken a half of a large head of green cabbage and just tore the leaves off of it and then separated the leaves of my collard greens and I soaked those in a big bowl of water together and I weighed them down with a plate and like a can of something on top of it and then I rinsed them off really well and I have them over here drying. So while those dry Let us take this salt pork, a half pound of which that I've cubed, and put it in our Dutch oven here. Got the Dutch oven going over medium-high heat. I want to put the salt pork in right away so that it starts rendering out that fat. I hope that you can already kind of hear it sizzling. I also have next to me here a finely diced large white or yellow onion. Uh, I'm going to use just half of that. I hope that you'll save the other half to make the corn dodgers, right, that go with this wonderful dish. So uh, I'm going to let the salt pork get started here. And meanwhile, I'm going to chop up my collards and my cabbage.
If you want to make the corn dodgers that go with this recipe, you need to have your oven preheating at 400 degrees right now. And I will tell you the step uh, in which you add the pot, pot liquor or the broth from your cabbage collars and pork into the batter for your corn, for your corn dodgers, okay? I'm just bringing over here a big towel wrapped in collard greens. Actually, I guess I should say collard greens wrapped in a big towel. I lay them out flat, as flat as I can get them at least, on two towels. And now I'm going to just tear them into pieces here. I want to make sure that I get them nice and dry. Any residual moisture comes off. Release salt pork. Are really going nicely now. Before I get too into cutting up these collards, as soon as your salt pork gets a little brown, add those onions, okay? That still needs another minute or so. Okay, I've started just tearing up my collard greens off the stalk. The stalks are just a little bit too chewy to keep in this recipe. Okay. So I'm working with a pound of collard greens here. It's about two uh, stacks or bundles that you'll find in your supermarket. As I mentioned in the earlier part of this episode, this was really a dish where the green was whatever was most available to Jim. So if turnip greens are something that you find and want to use, go right ahead. Smells so lovely and porky in here. All right, my salt pork is just beginning to brown. So I'm gonna add in my onions, sweat those down a little bit. Turn down my heat just a little here. I've had it a little too high on the medium-high scale. Once your onions become translucent, you are going to throw in all these pieces of cabbage and collards. As I said, this was my first time making collard greens. So I was a little bit, I'll just say curious about how much you had to wash them and 
these are organic ones, so the uh, pesticides and fungicides are not used as much. So I definitely wanted to give these a little inspection for some creepy crawlies, just for my own purposes. And of course, the collard greens that you get pre-washed would be totally fine if you don't want to go through this process. Also, I think I'm just being a little bit extra here with my collard green precautions. I'm a newbie. This is very fun to do. Nearly there, cutting up these collard greens. Gonna move over to the cabbages now. cabbages already chopped up so I'm gonna throw the collards and cabbages all into this pot here trying not to miss <laughs> I did miss of course this looks like excuse me as I move a little closer to my microphone it looks like a lot but it's all going to sweat down uh, the collars are already done. I swear that my five-quart Dutch oven will be big enough for this. Maybe a little bit larger would have been better, but we're going to make it. Let's give it all a big stir here. Okay, now's the time to season, adding your salt and black pepper, about a teaspoon each to start. You, of course, can add more. Good taste. There's the salt. And now, black pepper that I've ground. Now, to this, we will add the water. Just one cup. No, it doesn't sound like a lot, but these cabbages and greens are gonna give off a lot of their moisture. Lower the heat down to low and cover with the lid. Get it. Everybody in the pool. Okay. So, right now, 
Regis way and you can get started on those corn dodgers and I will let you know when we are about 45 minutes in we can take the cabbage and collards out though you're gonna want to take out that about three quarters cup of pot liquor in say about 10 minutes and then add that to your corn dodgers here it is as simple as that and now uh, we get ready to taste okay food nerds at long last our cabbages greens and pork have finished off in the oven with their corn dodgers on top for about 20 25 minutes so they're fully done cabbages looking super tender so are the greens the salt pork in here with a nice little juicy bit rendered out all of its fat and I have here in a dish cabbages greens pork and of course some of that lovely pot liquor so all it's left to do is give it a taste a little taste of history and if it's made just right you know like huckleberry said ain't nothing better so let's give it a try wow it just got lovely collard green flavor so if you like the flavor of collard greens you're really really gonna love this recipe cabbage is so tender the salt pork just a lovely little chewy salty bite I was worried that it was going to be a little bit too salty but uh, that is not the case at all it's got really lovely flavor I would make this any weekend Sunday Saturday days that end in Y it's so good it is truly and I know I say this about everything but I mean it literally delicious so thank you so much food fans for joining me here in the kitchen today as we made pork greens and cabbages like Jim from Huckleberry Finn. Thank you so much, food nerds, for listening to this episode of Literally Delicious. If you would like to send in a recommendation for a recipe or a dish or a drink or whatever from a work of literature that you want to see me make, do so by emailing us at literallydelishpod at gmail.com. Well, thank you, for, thank you again for listening to this episode. Stick around now for our last bite. All right, it's time for that moment that I know you all have been waiting for. It is time for our last bite. So, food nerds, I wanted to give you a little mental dessert to chew on for the rest of your week here. In today's last bite, I want to close the book on collard greens and share with you three additional new little pieces of information, three little tidbits about collard greens. One is about Mark Twain. Another is a correction of something that I said in a previous episode. And the third is... Uh, another point about the history of the collard green. So, Mark Twain, he was truly a fan of the collard green. You can hear it in Huckleberry Finn when he says, ain't nothing in the world better when it is cooked right. Well, actually, further in his career, he wrote a travel log called A Tramp Abroad, which describes his travels through Europe, Britain, so on and so forth. And in that travel log, he has a chapter called Twain's Bill of Fare. And on that list of dishes from the United States that he missed so desperately includes, of course, collard greens and bacon. So that Mark Twain really was a true collard fan. Another fact that I wanted to bring up here is actually something of a correction from our previous episode on cornbread, 
where I mentioned the addition of whiskey into collard greens. I don't know this for sure, but I am willing to bet that the addition of alcohol in the collard green was not something that was part of the slave food diet. Because, as I said in this episode, slave food was really dependent upon those ingredients that they could grow or they were given by the slaveholder. And it's unlikely, I think, that the slaveholder would provide the slaves with alcohol. Because from the slaveholder's perspective, it might harm the productivity of a slave. And uh, there's actually a really uh, kind of depressing moment in uh, the narrative of Frederick Douglass, which describes uh, Frederick Douglass's slaveholder giving he and other slaves alcohol, of which they overpartake in because they had never had it before. They didn't understand its intoxicating abilities. And the slaveholder did this, says Douglas, so as to make them feel more dependent upon the slaveholder, to feel like they were less able to be free, which was a really terrible sort of psychological tactic employed. So this whole bit about alcohol in the collard green just wanted to clarify this was probably done after slavery. Uh, But if you have any information, food nerds, about the addition of alcohol and collard greens that I don't know of. I'll be really interested in hearing that. And then finally, a third collard green fun fact about pot liquor. And this is actually really, really telling. Pot liquor was enjoyed mostly by the slaves on the plantation as it was commonplace for the plantation owners to request that the pot liquor be drained out. But in that pot liquor is so many great nutrients, so many vitamins, and so much really wonderful flavor, and it really was appreciated and driven in popularity by uh, slaves in the U.S. South. So uh, collard greens, slave food, and, and so much of our Southern cuisine, like I said, has a lot to do with the history of slavery. So just wanted to acknowledge that. All right, food nerds, thanks again for listening to this episode. I'll be back next week with a new episode of Literally Delicious. Until then, be well and stay hungry.